Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Today on Future Hindsight, we talk to Robert Hammond. He's the executive director and one of the co-founders of Friends of the Highline, which raises the funding to maintain and operate the Highline and its programs. Robert and Joshua David, the other co-founder, turned a one-and-a-half-mile abandoned elevated railroad in Manhattan into a park in the sky. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you read in the New York Times that the Highline was going to be demolished. What propelled you to actually go to the community board meeting to find out more about this? It was back in 1999, and I just turned 29. And it was the first time in my life I'd had my own office where I could close the door. And so I... I decided I wanted to get involved in something in the city. I read this article and I I just assumed someone must be already working to preserve this because everything in New York has a preservation group attached to it. No one did. And I heard it was on the agenda of this community board meeting. So I thought I'd check it out. Nice. That's very proactive. There aren't a lot of people like that. So by chance, you sat next to Joshua David, who became the co-founder with you of Friends of the Highline. You thought this would be a temporary one-year gig, is what I read in the paper. But at what point did you decide that you were fully committed to seeing this through? Yeah, I didn't even rate it as a gig. I, I rated it as like a hobby Okay, <laughs> at the time. Better. And Joshua did the same thing. Joshua was a a travel writer who lived in Chelsea. I lived in the West Village. And so he read the same article, had the same thought, came to the meeting for the same reason. We just happened to be sitting next to each other. Because we had no experience in any of this, we thought maybe our goal would be to find someone else or another group to take it on. So the first few months, that's what we did is we just tried to get other organizations to own this and we would help out pretty quickly, we realized no one was going to do it. So then we thought, okay, we'll get this thing started. But eventually, someone else with some experience will actually make it happen. So tell me about the first time you actually went to see the Raw High Line and how you then became uh, a visionary for a park in the sky. I'd only seen the the High Line from the street. And so it was sort of this um, rusty, steel-structured a uh, New York version of the Roman aqueducts that were abandoned, except it wasn't that old. It was finished in 1934. After Josh and I went to that meeting, the first thing we did is we called up the railroad, CSX, that owned it, and asked for a tour. They took us up there, and I think that was probably September of 99. And when we first went up there, you know, there was a mile and a half of wildflowers right in the middle of New York. And that's when I really fell in love because... It was this weird juxtaposition of nature and man-made, hard and soft, beautiful and ugly, and this just sort of very New York kind of tension that was hidden for most people. That's when I knew that there was something really special there. Yeah, I remember seeing those early photos also in the late 90s, and I thought, wow, that's really kind of a shame that they're going to um, demolish it. But I never imagined that anybody would be able to pull this off. It's been such a smash hit. It's really fantastic. One of the things that I really like about it is that it is a public park Mm -hmm. in downtown in Chelsea, in the village. There aren't a lot of green spaces. What's the importance of public parks to you? It was something I never really had thought about at all before I started this. (laughs) The model for parks originally, I think, you know, in New York and the world is definitely Central Park. You take farmland and you turn it into this sort of bucolic 
kind of experience that's like an escape from the city. The Highland was very different. It was actually a man-made structure. The landscape that was growing up there was not natural. It was growing in, you know, what was once a gravel pit filled with chemicals <laughs> and just these plants and managed to, to survive in that. Um, and when you're up there, you're never far from the city. And that's one of the reasons I think it's successful is that it's a different kind of park. Part of the experience is, is, yes, it's being in the green and the nature, but it's also seeing the car, seeing the buildings, hearing the city. So it's that combination. And when we were first starting to think about what would actually happen up there, I, I was really pessimistic because it was so beautiful as like a private garden. You had to get permission from the railroad and you had to go through these locked gates. And so there wasn't very many people up there. And we knew we had to remove everything that was there. So we were really worried, like, how do you recreate this experience? And one of the things that happened on, on the day after we opened is I realized the experience was so much better with people up there because it added the true ingredient of cities, which is people. <laughs> cities aren't just the buildings and the streets and, or, and, and parks and nature. It's really the people that makes a city. And so it had this whole other dimension to it that makes it really work. And I, I think some of the reason people go up there is is not just to the plants or the city. It's actually to have those experiences with other people and just that sort of ultimate New York uh, experience of people watching, of voyeurism, of, and seeing down into the streets, into buildings, interacting with others. I agree. It's really about the people and the experience of traversing the city. Actually, one of my favorite experiences when I first went up uh, and I walked from 20th Street down to Gansevoort Street. Yep. I thought, oh, wow, this is really fast because you're yep. not looking out for traffic and it was really peaceful. It has really changed, I think, the life of New Yorkers in that area. So aside from the real estate boom, what else has the Highland changed in the surrounding community? It's, it's so interesting because now I think people think of the Highline as so successful. And I sort of want to talk about this kind of issue of over-success. When we were starting it, we were worried no one would come. So when we first opened, we told the city we thought uh, 300,000 people would come every year. So that's how many at the time went to the Whitney or the Guggenheim, you know, a mid-sized cultural institution. Last year, we had about 7.5 million visitors. Um, and so it's been so much more successful than we thought. It's good. A lot of people are coming, but it also has a lot of other impacts of that kind of success. Our biggest opponents, ironically, when we were fighting to save it, were the property developers. Mayor Giuliani all wanted to tear it down because they thought it was bad for property values. <laughs> now it's become um, so su successful, it has a whole nother set of consequences. And the experience of being on it is also different. You know, if you go up there on a Saturday afternoon, it's crowded. For some people, it's too crowded. But it's something we just never anticipated. And we've had to then uh, sort of rethink our approach to a lot of different um, parts of it. So, for example? We really wanted to create this for New Yorkers. If it's really crowded, does it feel like New Yorkers? About a third of our visitors are New Yorkers. And the good news is we have more New Yorkers come every year. We had over 1.5 million New Yorkers, you know, come last year. 
Um, but when you have a lot of tourists, it gives a different feeling. So we really started working through our programs, the activities that we have on the High Line. We gear those just for New Yorkers. We do a lot of different family programs. We do a lot for the neighbors uh, that were in that neighborhood. You know, before all of this development, there's two large New York City Housing Authority complexes in the neighborhood. Um, and they haven't benefited from a lot of the changes in the neighborhood. You know, a lot of the stores where they shopped at have left. They have to take the subway to go shopping. They don't own their apartments, so they don't benefit from the rising property values. The good news is they're not going to get kicked out. We wanted to make them feel like this park was also for them. So we did a lot of community outreach. But when we opened the park, not very many people were coming. And so we surveyed about 20% of the residents that live in those two public housing complexes. There was three reasons they didn't come. One, they didn't feel it was built for them. Two, they didn't see people that looked like them. And three, they didn't like our programs. And so we had to rethink you know, what we were doing. And when we asked what did they want from us, the number one thing was jobs for, for their kids. So one, we, we rethought our programs. Two, we created a teen program. So we were hiring teens from the local neighborhood that actually helped us develop the programs that we were doing on the High Line. Um, and now we have about 30 teens every year that go through this program. The year after we opened it was only about 20% people of color, which obviously does not match the city. Um, last year, it was about 44%. So we've seen a real change in that. And that's mainly, I think, through that programming. Because I think we had the view that if you create a public space and it's free and it's a park, everyone will feel welcome. But I, that was very naive. Not everyone did feel welcome. I wish we had done more of that before we opened. And it's one of the reasons we've started this Highline Network, which is a network of other industrial reuse projects to help them from learn some of the things that we might have done differently, you know, if we could start over again. Yeah, that's very future forward. From everything that you're telling me, I'm now curious to know, how do you find out all these numbers? How do you know that 20% yeah, yeah. were of color and now 44%? That's, uh, that's pretty precise. And yeah. also... Your comment earlier that they didn't like your programming. Yeah. That sounded almost off because you said they didn't see other people who looked like them. They didn't think it was for them, but they were aware of your programming. Yeah. How, how does yeah. that work? We did a lot of communications in those complexes. One of the things they specifically didn't like was a program designed for their teens. We had a teen movie series on the High Line. We knew that there were a lot of teens living there, and so we did flyers in their neighborhood. And so what they were hearing from their kids is, we don't like those movies they're showing. We had a train-themed movie series. Teens didn't want to see old movies about trains. There's two ways we get information about the people on the highline. One is we're technically a building. But because we have entrances, we have uh, a certain number of people that are allowed on the highline to keep it safe. So we have visitor services staff that are up there, and every hour they do this count that then we translate into an estimate that gives us a daily count of how many people are on the High Line every day. And then once a year, we check those estimates by doing actual counts of everyone that comes on and off the High Line. And then every two years, we do a series of surveys. It took you 10 years from 99 until 2009 to open the park and there were a lot of 
ups and downs and lawsuits and uncertainty. What helped you stay motivated through all this? I mean, if you'd told me it would have taken 10 years, I don't know what I would have thought. And now in retrospect, I feel like it was very fast. My mother asked me one time, what is the chances of this happening right after we started? And I said, probably one in a hundred. I'm a dreamer, but I knew it was very unlikely that it was going to happen. Every year in the early years, I'd sort of make this personal calculus, like, why am I spending so much time on this? Why am I then after a few years make it my full-time job if I didn't think it was happening? I was learning so much from these people, it was worthwhile for me, even if it wasn't going to happen. And I think from a city standpoint, I felt like if this didn't happen, something else like it would happen. You know, by putting these people together, putting these ideas together, it was going to lead to something, whether it was an elevated rail line in Chelsea or some other kind of open space project. I felt like there was a value of all of us thinking and talking and organizing around these kind of issues. Yeah, that's that's pretty motivating. I think that's uh, very exciting to think that uh, whatever comes of your specific project, it's still going to lead to something so, bigger. There's also something freeing and motivating if you think something's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Setbacks aren't as hard because it's a crazy idea. And I think a lot of our supporters were those kind of people. Diane von Furstenberg was one of our first supporters. And you ask her now, she was like, oh, no, no, I thought it was a crazy idea. You know, these two guys didn't know anything. You know, she, she one time called his neighborhood nobodies. But she supported it because it was a dream. There's certain fun and excitement in those crazy dreams. And that's why a lot of our supporters were artists, art galleries, you know, people that were not coming at it from, well, let me see the budget of where you're going to get the money to build right. this thing. Right, exactly. What's the bottom line? Yeah. Actually, I was going to ask you this question. In order to make this high line a reality, you needed allies. So how did you really do that? How did you go to Diane von Furstenberg, for example, or to these art gallerists and say, you know, buy into my idea? Yeah. How did you persuade them? One of my um, first jobs out of college was doing sales. And it was very demoralizing because I was having to cold call people for this product. And, you know, most people didn't want it. And so I started this game with myself that I couldn't leave the office until I had X number of rejections. And so I would just start dialing, just trying to get through to people. I read a self-help book that said, you know, write everything down. I had a piece of paper, a notebook page, and I would just write the names of people that might know anything about it or be helpful. I'd give them my few-minute pitch, which was basically, there's a mile and a half in Manhattan. How often do you have to think about that? I don't know what it should be. And most people would be like, either that's a dumb idea, it's never going to happen. But every once in a while, someone would be interested. And they would give me someone else to call. And so this page just kept filling up with people that I would call. And I look back, there's still some people on that list that, helped out and were part of this throughout the whole thing. The other thing that was helpful is we we didn't have, Josh and I, you know, people always said when we were doing this, like, well, what's the vision? You know, okay, so you want to save it, but what do you want to build? What's the end result? And we said, we don't know. In the beginning, we didn't know if, even know if it should be a park. We just knew it should be saved and somehow made open to the public. So for some people, that was a complete turnoff. But for a lot of people, they could see th th that they could have a role in shaping it. And when you don't know what something's going to be, 
it, it, it enables you to have a really large tent of people that have their own visions. People were realizing their own vision for the Highline, not Robert and Josh's. And, and what it coalesced around was we had this guy, Joel Sternfeld, go up and photograph it. He went up there, took these photos, and people fell in love with those photos. Eventually, people were like, we want something that's something in this spirit of those photographs. And, and it really was sort of like a collective vision. Oh, nice. What was yeah. maybe the biggest lucky break that indicated to you, okay, this is going to happen? Yeah, there was never really one time. Okay. Because even when we opened, I thought it might fail. Okay. Like, what if it's unsafe? What if we've built this thing and no one uses it? What if it falls apart because the plants only have 13 inches? What if everything dies when it freezes? I, it wasn't until it opened and people actually came that I was like, okay, this thing might happen. It might work. But there were there were a lot of different points. Um, I think Joel Sternfeld, that we happened to get that guy that photographed it in such a magical way um, that and that that was able to capture so many people. There was a city council person named Gifford Miller who then became speaker of the city council and he really got behind this project and was a really critical partner. Christine Quinn, our local city council person, then became speaker. That was helpful. The Bloomberg administration was an incredible partnership and it wasn't it wasn't just the mayor, it was a lot of people that worked for him, Deputy Mayor Dan Doctoroff, um, the planning commissioner, Amanda Burden, this was one of her favorite projects. She had a vision for it right away. She could see a vision in some ways more than Josh and I could from the beginning. There's a lot of our board members that got behind Josh and I with this crazy dream. Phil Aarons, who's our board chair, um, Josh and I wrote a book about the first 10 years of how we got this done. And when we were going back and looking at it, it was like, oh, Phil told us to do this. Phil told us to do this. Phil told us. And, and now I view my biggest talent is finding smart people and, and doing what they tell me. Another great break was our design team. And it was led by a landscape firm, James Corner Field Operations, with Dilish Cafidio and Renfro as architects, and Pete Uldoff as the planting designer. And they, they got the magic, and they didn't try to slavishly recreate it. They came up with a magic that was inspired by that wildscape, but that was also able to handle the numbers of people that we needed. That was an incredibly lucky break. Right, so you had, like you said, a few miracles along the way that and, and all add up to the success. The, the, the timing. I, I watched the towers fall in 9-11 from the roof of my apartment and thought, well, there's the end of the Highline Project. You know, it was only two years old. It was so early. Why would anyone care about this when the city is facing such bigger problems? And actually, people got really into the Highline after it because... They couldn't help rebuild 9-11. You know, what are they going to do at ground zero? But here's something they could do that was optimistic, that was about making the city better, that was about getting involved. When had city planning issues been on the cover of the post week after week? People were really engaged in architecture and planning. And it was part of the sort of the dialogue that was happening in the city. People we're like, okay, I, I do believe in New York. We need to make the whole city better. We need to keep reinventing our city. Yeah, that's exciting that you were able to kind of ride the coattails of the idea of rallying around New York City, rebuilding it, and building a community that's vibrant 
and uh, relevant to the world. You mentioned a bunch of things earlier, sort of about taking advice from smart people and this being a community effort. So what's in it for you? What do you get out of this? Well, I think I have an amazing job. <laughs> it's a really fun job because it touches on so many different areas. You know, I actually never called the High Line uh, a park because I always thought of it as more than a park. And I think one of the reasons it's been successful is that it's this hybrid. It's sort of a combination between a museum, a botanical garden, a park, a public square, social service organization, all of those things into one. There's a guy named Arthur Cohen who publishes something called Culture Track, and it tracks people's views around culturals. He does these in-depth studies every two years and sort of people's changing views on culturals. And one of the things that's a challenge for a lot of museums and theaters is that people no longer want to go to a box for culture. They don't want to go to the box for art. They don't want to go to box to even eat anymore. They want to experience it all together. They want to be able to have a group experience, art, food, theater, nature, you know, all together. And so for me, it makes it so interesting because we get to work with artists gardeners, people dealing with environmental issues. I don't think parks can solve all of our social issues, but the environment, um, race, uh, economic injustice, education. Again, parks aren't going to solve them, but they have an intersection in parks. Any of the issues that you can think about that are that are really pressing in the world, there's a way that parks has a a role or a part in them or it touches them. To me, that's really interesting. And it's a very different view than I think we had when we started this. Honestly, when we started it, it was like a design project. It was create a cool public space. But I think now people that are managing and creating and running these public spaces have to be thinking about these other issues and how we impact them. What happens when you create an incredibly popular, economic, successfully public space? Who benefits by that? You know, the traditional way of looking at it was just the economic analysis on how much property value you create or tax revenues to the city, which is great because if the city makes more tax revenues, it can pay more for teachers and police and all the other things cities do. But what are the economic impacts for the people that are renting or that were living there for the, the businesses um, that aren't going to succeed because of it. It's one of the things we're doing as part of this Highline network is also look at the social and environmental metrics when you're thinking about these projects. Because once you create the value, it's very hard to take it back. You really almost can't take it back. What I urge people to do now when they're starting these things is look at those issues, not just the economic impacts. So... In this spirit, what are three suggestions for how people can get involved around creating vibrant public spaces for their communities? Most people don't know about their community board. They're open to the public. You can get appointed to them. They are interesting. They're powerful. They're powerless. They're invigorating. They're frustrating. It's everything about cities you find in these community boards. And they need people to get involved. They're only as good as people getting involved. So... 
even if you you think you go to a community board and you're like, wow, this is not for me, you're going to see a lot of issues that they're dealing with. That's how a lot of people came to us is they heard us presenting at community boards. And then there's so many different organizations working on different kind of projects. You know, it's just going out there and seeing who's the right fit, who needs what you have to offer. Do you want to help raise money? Are you interested in policy? Are you interested in, you know, communications? We had volunteers in each one of these different areas. So it's whether you want to start something or just get involved in something that's existing. Right. There are lots of opportunities. Yeah. Last question. What is your vision for its future? The Highline's been open. Next year it'll be 10 years, and but we started it 19 years ago. So I think of the Highline as sort of like 19 years old. And a 19-year-old looks fully grown. Things can go horribly wrong at 19, you know, like, you know, and you and 19-year-olds don't know and shouldn't know what they're going to be when they grow up. And I feel like we're a 19-year-old. We're almost fully grown. We have one more part that's going to open next year. But I think our future is really open. And I think that's what we're engaged with right now is what what is the future? How should we reinvent what a cultural is? And I think they need to be open for everyone. And again, how do we continue to make sure people feel that public open space is truly for everyone, not just in the people in the buildings nearby or wealthy people or the donors that are supporting it? And I think that's really going to be our future organizations, especially public open space, they have to respond to what's happening in the world right now. We won't reach our true potential unless we continue to do that. And I think it's going to look very different in, in five or 10 years than it does right now. And when I say that, I mean the whole High Line. And I think of the High Line as more than just a physical space. It's a whole sort of project or concept. I like your open open view. <laughs> that's a good one to take. And I think that's been your view from the very beginning, right? You were open to ideas. You were open to other people it's, jumping it's, in and helping and figuring out the way forward. So It's a process, not about the final outcome. And it's right. a continual process rather than, okay, you built it and it's done. Well, that's very exciting for the future of the Highline. Thank you very much for coming today and taking the time to talk to Future Hindsight. Great. Robert Hammond clearly embraces the Nike style of civic engagement. Just do it. He started with a healthy dose of curiosity and enthusiasm and was sustained by a steady diet of skepticism as well as an abundance of perseverance over the many years of resistance against the Highline. His initial idea of simply saving the elevated railroad from being demolished gradually turned into the vision of a park that reminds us of the wildflowers of the quiet, abandoned tracks and simultaneously interacts with the vibrancy of people and the city. No doubt, there are many other public space projects that could deliver similar benefits to communities around the nation and the world. All we have to do is to dream, jump in, and persevere. On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Ruth Milkman. She's the Distinguished Professor of Sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center and at the Joseph S. Murphy Institute for Worker Education and Labor Studies. So unionization in the United States peaked in the 1950s when roughly a third of the workforce was composed of union members. And even beyond that third, 
to stave off unionization, many employers matched the wage and benefit packages that unions negotiated for their members, so the effect was actually bigger than for that 35%. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.